Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the fine folks at Double Exposure and their leading game design convention, Metatopia, from which all of these panels were recorded at Metatopia 2017. It's also thanks to the generous contributions of the panel speakers. Now let's get to the show. Episode 145, Building Narrative Arcs in Board Games. Presented by Roberta Taylor and Kurt Covert. Are we all having a good time? Did we see exciting things? Did we test things that uh, went very well? Nice. Well, I guess we can sure. start you introduce yourself? and see where we get. So, yeah, um, I'm Roberta Taylor. I am a board game designer from um, Edmonton, Alberta, where it is currently minus 25 degrees Celsius. Really? Yes. So I am very happy to be here. Um, and I, my first time at Metatopia, and I'm really, really enjoying all the things that, that I'm learning from all the conversations I have. Um, and I'm really hopeful that this conversation also will um, be something we can learn from. Um, this session is on um, building story in board games, and um, Kurt is also joining me, and he can tell you about himself. Hey, I'm uh, Kurt Covert. I'm the owner of Smirk and Dagger Games, um, and I've been in operation for 14 years. For a lot of that, I designed my own board games, and now, of course, I also bring in other designers but uh, yeah, I, I heard about your, your panel. It sounded super interesting. And I also really believe in, uh, in narrative, uh, you know, as, as kind of a, an underpinning of the game that helps propel the game into a, a higher level for people the way they engage in it. So, yeah. Yeah, so um, I guess um, we'll start um, I don't know what's the best way to go. Well, I'll tell you what. <laughs> just first of all, show of hands. Uh, are we all designers in here? Show of hands, designers. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, and for those of you who like said that sounds cool, is that because you're like, yeah, man, I always do that, or you know, that's kind of an interesting concept I'm not as in contact with. Like, who is like, I always build narrative. And who is like, tell me more about that, because that's kind of <laughs> awesome. Well, it's a, it gives us a sense of like, you know, why you guys are here, what your interests are. So, uh, so that's all good. Mm-hmm. For sure. So um, I thought we'd start with talking about, well, what do we mean when we talk about story in a board game? Um, because this is very different, of course, than an RPG, um, where it's all about the story. Um, and I think every good game creates its own story of some kind. It's just, it's, it's really deliberately tweaking that. Um, if you watch someone who's a very good chess player play chess, they're going to, there's a little, there's a little story happening there. It's not a terribly exciting one for the a spectator, especially unless you're really into chess, but there it is. There's, you know, you make your little moves and your counter moves and whatever. But I'm really thinking um, more of, of creating that really immersive experience where people come into it. And then later, you know, when they're talking to their buddy the next time they see them, they're like, yeah, well, you remember? And then we ran on the hallway and we locked them in that room and the zombies came and ate them. And, and there's something there. Um, and, and then there's a lot of space in between. Um, so you know, you've got your story with your beginning, your middle, and your end. Something goes wrong, or there's tension, whatever, you've got your climax. How can we fit that kind of a, um, that classic story arc into um, a board game experience and, and what that might look like? So I was sort of thinking for myself, well, what games can I think of that have a really good example of, of different ways that can look? Um, one of the first ones that came to mind was Pandemic. Um, cooperatives are really good at this, and, and Pandemic's great because it does this thing where it's really tense, and then you cure a disease, and you breathe a sigh of relief, and then it gets even worse. 
and that's a very classic sort of story. Arc. Sure, I mean the movies are like that all the time. Yeah, yeah. and um, and then I was thinking, um, well, what other examples of games that you might have played? Have you thought, oh, the story, the way that told the story through playing it was really awesome. Yeah. So and the other thing is, you know, kind of what is the importance of a narrative to a game? Why why would you seek to to instill that um, as what kind of holds your, your game together. Um, so often when, when people play games, uh, they're doing it because it's an immersive experience. So uh, differently than an abstract, an abstract is usually like a mental challenge, a puzzle, something to, you know, you're, it's, it's a very mathy experience. Uh, but most thematic board games, and I think largely that's what we're talking about, most thematic board games have a conceit. Like there is a theme to the game and you can tell when a theme does not correctly build a narrative because um, it feels pasted on. If you think about a lot of licensed board games, it is the, uh, I don't know, the, the Firefly board game, the, you know, Buffy, whatever the, the big property is that someone says, cool, paste it on this game. And when you play it, you're like, I don't feel like I'm Buffy. I don't feel like I'm doing the thing that the game is saying I'm gonna do. That's where a thematic and a narrative is failing. Uh, it's not, the, the mechanics are not delivering the experience of that narrative. And because you are fans of that existing property, you feel it more pronounced at that moment because there's a level of expectation if it's a game about adopting dogs, I can kind of, you know, you're gonna tell me kind of what the experience is gonna be. But if you told me I'm gonna play Buffy, well, I, my expectation is here. And if, if that is not met through a proper narrative where I feel invested in the story, in the immersive, you know, world that you're creating, then I feel like, oh, this is just one of those games. Um, the real benefit of doing it right, of building the right narrative and finding the, the ways to instill drama, tension, emotional rewards, all of those things that make all those properties valuable to us as humans, that's the, those are the, the kind of things that you're looking for. Like, you know, how can I build mechanics that direct behaviors that create the immersive story that I really want to tell, and the benefit is when I'm done playing, I feel like I experienced the world you set out in that great description on the back of the box. I feel like I step away from the table. I'm like telling my friends, this is so cool. Here's what happened. And I tell it like it's a movie because I, I felt it like it was a movie or a book or a something. And I think that's really the, the power of a, a strong narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I guess when I think about putting, putting a story or, or making a game have that, um, I think about, like you said, the things that make you immersed in it, the things that, that make it memorable. Um, and it's different than in other media. And one of the really big differences is you can't you can't micromanage the character's actions. That's what the players are doing. So you're creating this sort of the setting and the mood. You've got the music, the candles are lit, but then you sort of let the players loosen there and hope that they that they go where you want them to go. And and every game space has this this huge amount of potential within it. And so um, it's it's a very different process in trying to tell a story. Um, so what players' decisions that are available to them to, at any moment are really going to make or break how they feel about, and, and do things fit together well and stuff like that. Um, one of the things I was thinking about when I was thinking about this is so often the very best stories of those gaming sessions that develop actually develop between the players. Sort of the idea of a metagame, like where you get that, that you can't build that into a game. You can just create. I, oh, I agree. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. You, you, you create the circumstances under which it can thrive. Yes. 
Um, but the players have to bring that desire, I think, yes. to join in. And, and I think some of that is table setting. Um, so if you set the expectation that this is going to be um, a very, you know, like, emotional warm game, you're not going to have people be jerks as much. If you set the table, you know, this is going to be a backstabbing game, then you're already setting the expectation for the types of behaviors you're going to have. And then I really do think that your mechanics can create behavioral funnels so that you can have consistent gameplay from session to session. Regardless of who comes and joins your game, you know, they're going to be like modifications because not everyone is a, an aggressive player or some are protective. You know, you're going to see those variances, but you are setting the table and creating a funnel that rewards people for behaving in certain ways. And if you do that correctly and it links to your story arc, you end up having the right drama, the right tensions at the right times, and you can, you can kind of lead people towards an experience. Um, so I think there really are some mechanics that, that can do that. Mm -hmm. talk specifically about the, the minute. Yeah. Um, yeah, so then I was thinking, well, how, how does a player um, interact with story? And one thing that I realized was every single player, when they're playing a game, is the hero. Like when you write a yes. novel, you usually have a couple, one or two heroes. But when you have a board game, everyone at the table is, by virtue of being there, they're the hero of that. That's a great point. And, and so you've got a, an interesting, um, and, and they're all sort of, even if it's a cooperative game, they're still all sort of striving slightly against each other because they're still having their own experience. Yeah. Um, even, if, if, even if it's a competitive game, um, you know, no one's the villain. Well, I'll take that back. There are some games where someone is programmed to be the villain. Yeah. But, but by and large, yeah, you know, even if it's a really competitive game, I'm still the hero, right? I'm going to win, yeah. so obviously I've got, like, you know... So if cutting you off here makes me win, I'm not a villain. I'm a better hero. Sure, yeah. I was just, I was really, I was, in, I was insightful. I took some action. Awesome. But, yeah, but uh, that's, that's actually... And how you make sure that people feel the role that you're placing them in is also part of that story so that's good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think you, keeping in mind that that for each player that they're central to that narrative um, is, is probably really important. Um, and so yeah, I don't know if we want to sort of go through some of these things in the detail or, or have, have Sure. Like um, I have some other sort of ideas, but I don't just want to spit all my ideas yeah, yeah. at everyone. I'd love to hear what you're thinking and, and what. Well, so first of all, let me just ask: um, when you guys, you know, read about the the panel, you obviously had some um, some impressions of what we might be talking about. So far, does it feel like what you expected to hear? Anyone? Or no, not quite. So, what did you expect to hear today? Um, I guess I imagined that it would be more in like the direction of a traditional or like an RPG type narrative, so somewhere in the middle of like how would you how would you work those two things together? Gotcha. Um, and so that's that's valid. Um, I think that's even a narrower discussion, um, but it's just as valid. So, uh, for example, um, even. Um, my game Cutthroat Caverns is a is a card game, um, and I think in my third expansion, I decided to overlay a choose your own path adventure book, so that the more abstract version of the game, and there's a huge story arc in the game built, um, but that choose your own path adventure book was a way to overlay even more of the classic D&D &D adventure story where things happen in between the monsters that you, that you fought. Um, and that was probably a good example of how you can try to like, you know, blend worlds. I took a, a basic card game and found a way to create true narrative with passing the book around and you know, every choice you made mattered and changed the, the end result of, of your, your game. 
Uh, there have been great games like, um, what is the, uh, you guys probably know it. Um, it's, the, it's, it's got a book this yeah, thick. Yeah, they've below and the Arabian Nights. Arabian Nights is what I was thinking of, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so that is a beautiful way that someone took a true narrative concept and merged it into a board game that really delivers that full experience. Uh, but even, you know, Betrayal uh, 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 on the Hill, I mean, again, lots of different story arcs, lots of different villains, lots of different, you know, what are we doing this time? Those are all ways to build, uh, you know, narrative and story in. But even there, at the basic level, you know, if you look at the mechanics, how are they setting the pacing um, so that you feel like tension, tension, something's going on, and and building to the big climax with the big boss. I mean, there is a, a, a narrative flow, and if you remember back to like grade school, and, and you know, you think about uh, you know the, the introduction and the climax and all of those things, all of those principles really can apply to how you set the pace of a board game and deliver what feels more like an immersive experience through the play. I'm just wondering if you guys can maybe touch upon different components or approaches to board game design. The pros and cons, of, you just talked about a choose your own adventure book. Yeah. So what are the benefits of going down that road if you've gone down that road? What are the pitfalls or expectations that you need to set up for yourself for extra work or extra testing for the different types of narrative directions you can take in terms of the components? Well, I don't know if we'll co cover all of them. <laughs> but but yes, you have experience with it, right? Yeah, so... Um, I think there are, are a lot of mechanics that uh, can lead to um, ways to influence uh, a narrative. So, for example, uh, push your luck. What is the role of push your luck in telling a narrative? Well, push your luck is, is risk and reward. Um, and how often in any story that we've read or seen, you know, the hero is like, you know, man, Every, everything's on the line. This is a risky move, but because I'm the hero, I want to go for it. Your players want to go for it. Now, they're mitigating, they're like, well, damn, I could lose everything. But Push Your Luck is designed to create that tension and the emotional reward of nailed it, or, oh, damn, I can do it. You know, all of that. So you can blend that into a piece of that story arc. Um, what are some of the other things? Um, well, actually, Cl Clank is another classic push your luck, right? So there, you know that um, you, you've got to go deep into the depths to get the best stuff, but someone's going to skirt the top, pick up a few items, and beat you out and lock you in the dungeon. Um, so when you get done with that game and you start telling you, oh, what happened? Well, what happened is always going to be fairly consistent. You either went the depth, risked it all, and came out a hero, or you got abandoned down there because someone who was just quicker than you. Um, these are the types of... When you set the story arcs for each player, and each player's experience is different, they are all the hero, um, you know what some of those endings are. So a lot of that is also like the Choose Your Own Path adventure. There are multiple endings that happen in all these games. Um, and knowing what the end result is helps you steer players in various different directions because most good games have more than one pathway to win. And that creates, again, that's a, having multiple paths to win creates more narrative. Um, do you well, have any ideas? I'd just say with, with anything using a storybook, where you've got your sort of choose your own adventure. One thing I've noticed is it's definitely much more of a experience of wandering through the stories yes. and, and they have this gameplay and it's cool and somebody wins, but that doesn't tend to be where the, the memorable stuff happens. It's more as you have this sort of meandering journey through whatever stories you stumble into. Um, so you're, you're creating a different type of experience. I think it would be difficult. You'd have to work very, very hard and very carefully to create a, a story like that that also had this ramp up to a big climactic finish where you felt like everyone was kind of fighting for that win because 
they're very, by their nature, a very different experience, and players tend to be there for different reasons. Um, and so, you know, any game you design, take into account really what are the players here to experience and how can I build that story for them and whether that's really explicit with your you know paragraph books or whether that's just like you said creating those funnels that that causes people to be at that moment of oh you know do I go left or right and later going oh I knew I should have gone left that um it is I I think having those clear experiential design goals in mind as you work towards creating that story is very helpful. Yeah. If I say, I really envision when I, when, I, when I first thought of this game idea, I, I envision people sitting tensely around the table watching the dice rolls, you know, and, and having that sense of, of really where you're going is helpful as you're making those design decisions. Uh, to answer your specific question about um, some of the mechanics and, and how they can, you know, what, what are the impacts, I think was what it um, and I, just because you were talking about the choose your own path, again, I'll, I'll, I'll reference Cutthroat Caverns. Cutthroat Caverns, just for anyone who has never played, um, is a semi-cooperative game where you must work together to escape the dungeon without dying. However, you are rewarded for betraying each other at the last moment because it's all up kill sleep. Who lands the final blow to get the prestige? Um, so if I have to trip you or edge someone out of the way, I'm going to do it. And the more that I do that, we all get closer to death because the creatures live longer. Now, it's a, a fairly straightforward card game. The creatures themselves create the decision funnels that um, constantly give people new and interesting ways to, I will reward you for misbehaving, even though it is against the better, uh, you know, situation for, for everyone at the table, including yourself sometimes. But you're willing to do it because you really want that reward. A lot of the funnels that I build in that game are for that specific thing. There's a lot of replay. Um, every time you have a different group of people or a different combination of creatures or other uh, influences, the narrative changes slightly, even though it's fairly consistent. When I added the Choose Your Own Path Adventure book, I understood that by doing so, it was a one-shot. Um, it was intended to create a new level of play, a different experience, but like a legacy game, you know, once you, once you complete it, you're like, that was awesome, but now I'll have to do the next one. And so, what are the implications there? One, it created a really rewarding experience for players. Did I hear, oh yeah, but you only really do it once. Yes, that's true. Um, so do people really want a game completely focused on one play? No, that's why everything else in the box was for ongoing play. And why legacy games take forever to complete. Because legacy games are another wonderful way to create narrative. Every time you play, you are changing conditions. And that's world building. When you do now, every time you sit down, you feel like you're back in the same place, but things are different, and the actions you took, just like a Choose Your Own Path adventure, are resetting the stage and changing the environment. As you play game after game, the narrative for all those players continues to evolve and develop, and you become very invested in the game and in the world that you are creating together. That is an excellent way to create narrative but it is one use. That tends to be more of an emergent narrative than explicit narrative defined by the game. That is true. Uh, it's more of the interaction of players working together to solve the problems presented by rather good mechanics. Yes, and, and the, the narrative of a game is, is not limited uh, in, in any way. Uh, narrative of a game is, uh, is an omnibus. Uh, with different levels of how much is metagaming, how much is um, you know, the mechanics creating the situation, and how much is explicit. Um, so all of them can be very effective. Did you guys have any, any games that you thought did it extremely well that uh, highlighted a, a piece? You already mentioned Pandemic and the Legacy yeah. game. Yeah. Uh, so a significant amount of tension. 
So another, another mechanic that can very often really lead to a lot of great narrative uh, is uh, action counteraction. Um, because the, um, a game like Magic the Gathering, a game like Wiz War, a game like, you know, wherever you've got, like, I'm doing this, no, ha ha, you know, all that kind of thing, um, also starts feeding into the narrative, especially that you tell when you leave the game. Uh, because the, the emotional highs and lows of a, a game where there's a, a high player interaction and a high take back kind of a thing, starts leading towards um, stories of what happened then and also planning for next time we meet, building the meta into the next game. Um, so those are other, uh, other tools you can use. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think some other things. Now sometimes it is really just a, a mechanic like a, a time component. It's amazing the difference that a timer can make in creating a narrative and changing the, the face of your game completely. Um, I worked with, uh, with Gary Kagan on Paramedics Clear just recently. Um, when he built that game, it did not have a timer. It was, quite honestly, it was almost like a Euro hand management, resource management game. And it was about paramedics in the field trying to treat patients and triaging them and getting them to the hospital. But it was a very, a very methodical, logic-built game. It was a puzzle, like most Euros. Then he added a timer. And the impact of having 60 seconds to do all that hand management, as, and then dwindling down to 45 and then 30 seconds, now puts you in the hot seat, and you feel like you are in the field treating patients, and if you don't act quickly enough, they're gonna die. It changes what was a very elegant management system into an experience that you feel viscerally. Um, it was a game where I was not actually sure whether actual EMTs and medical professionals were going to like the game, want to even play the game. And it could have gone either way. Happily, what happened was um, a lot of people came out of the woodwork and said, hey, there's never been a game about what we do. Um, I'm really interested. And when they sat down to play it, Sure, it's not a simulation. You know, it's, it's, there's lots of ridiculous stuff in it. They're not gonna put a cast on somebody, even though there's a cast icon to treat someone with. But the point is that it created an emotion. I felt like I was in the moment of being a paramedic, that lives were on the line, and if I didn't act quickly enough, this guy that was crushed by a boulder, he is dead. And when you get done with that game, you sit back and you're like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> you know, and they walk away from the table and they have a story to tell because they felt like they were in the story. And there was a constant, the, the, the secret to that game's story is never let up for a second. Even the downtime between players' turns was an important component. As soon as you were done with your turn, you stopped the timer and immediately restarted. Now, you are starting to draw back your cards, meeting up for them, all that kind of thing. Um, but before you know it, even as you're just starting to plan, it's your turn again. So the pressure never lets up. And that helps you feel like you're still in the driver's seat going to the next call. Um, part of the, creating that narrative, too, was having an app. And the, the, the timer that was built was sound effects. Um, you know, EKG, you go beep, beep, as you're like treating your patients and you get down to seven seconds, if you hit that, that tone, the guy's gone. So it creates a whole sense of this is why I'm here. I'm treating patients, man. So yeah. Yeah, the ability to have that, that little downloadable thing, the app with the sound can make such a um, it, it lets you add something you never used to be able to add to a game, right? That escape, the real-time uh, dice-rolling cooperative get-out-of-the-collapsing-temple game was the first one I ever played that did that. It was the same thing. It, it just oh, sure, yeah. makes you... The, the temple escape one, yeah. Yeah, and you're like frantically trying to do the things, and um, yeah, there's something very much, again, 
that adding that stuff in, it, it's a lot of fun, and it's definitely gotten the barrier to entry on that is basically nil, right? It's so easy to do that now, which yeah. is really awesome. And I think probably one of the important things is there, game designers approach what we do all very differently. Um, there are uh, a lot of folks who are very dissimilar to me, who are super math forward. They are, they are looking for the perfect engines to like challenge their players with. It's not something I, t I do typically well. I, I'm not a math-driven guy. I am more a, uh, a thematic and story and experience-driven guy, which is why when I sit down and test a game, yeah, the mechanics and the perfect balance, I am absolutely striving for that. But my most important thing is, how does it feel? Do I feel like I'm doing the thing that we're supposed to be doing? I'm looking for emotional impacts. I'm looking for the bell curve of, you know, um, how, how does my emotional journey continue throughout the game? And where are all the reward points? You know, people, when they sit down to play a game, there are specific things that are either going to frustrate them, that are going to challenge them, that are going to emotionally reward them, like, yes, I did it. All those things are all up to you guys to, to plant in a kind of a predictable way. So it has, it has repetition, you know, from session to session, when, I, when you play a game, it should feel like the same game. So it's, it's the designer's job to make sure that that narrative flow, that pacing, all of that is coming at the right general times. Do players influence it? Absolutely. Can it change? Sure. But on average, when you, when you take a look at a game, you are building in that timeline. You're building in that narrative. Whether you know it or not, chances are you're already doing a lot of this stuff because it feels right. It feels like, oh yeah, that's what makes this game cool. And a lot of that is related to theme and story and building the narrative or just play experience of, of the players. Because you can take an engine building game that's all, you know, moving cubes around and, and, and make it feel thematic and make players really engaged in it. Or you can make it feel like you're moving cubes around on a map. Right. And, and I've seen very successful games that do both, and I don't understand why the dry ones, although the story are successful myself, because I want story, but I mean, that's not what everyone's there for. But I think it's really just knowing your design and what you're going for, and then looking at it, okay, what are my levers here? What can I play with to change the pacing or to encourage more of the thing that's really fun or you know, create the tension, make it greater um, if you want you know, if you want that sort of cutthroat behavior, how do you incentivize the players to do that? How do you make it, and, and how do you add in more of that? And, and so really, I think knowing, knowing your design and identifying the places that you can adjust, you know, the little sliders you can slide to get a different experience, and then figuring out which ones are the best combo for you is, um, it, knowing that they're there and then looking for them is a helpful exercise in every design. Saying, okay, what, what are those buttons I can push? Yeah. Uh, I would also say that a lot of times um, what I do and what I've seen uh, other designers do that I, I, I really respect is um, so many times mechanics can be suggested by the theme or the experience that you're looking to, to, to give players. Um, uh, there's a... There's a designer out here, uh, Nolan, who's got a game called uh, Salvage, um, and uh, sat down to play that, and it's a game where you are, you know, the conceit, right, the overall top of the story is, oh, hey, we're all intergalactic, uh, you know, cultures that came together for a peace conference. Awesome. And in a show of solidarity, we're all going to warp out of the system at the same time. Ooh, terrible idea, because you created now a warped, crazy distortion bubble and only, and it's ripped parts off of your ship. The only way for you to, to escape is within seven cycles, get picked up all your pieces, and then get out the way you came. And the first person out, the bubble collapses. Your science software is like, there's only one person that's getting out of here. 
piece is over. This is about stealing pieces from other players. It's about being the first to get all the stuff. And it's created an interesting tension. Now, one of the great mechanics that he's got is he's got a collapsed deck. And this does two things. One, it helps set the narrative of what's happening in the universe. The warp bubble is collapsing. Um, now, it has the mechanical benefit of actually timing out the game and creating, you know, it starts slow, and then all of a sudden, the pace of the game ramps up towards the end because your options are dwindling and space is collapsing on you. Um, so things that, you know, all of a sudden now, you know, used to need four parts. At this point, three parts is going to do. Let's get moving. Um, you know, the one exit you had to get out of, well, now it's an entire sector, the first one to cross it. It's making the game progress more quickly, and it's giving you the sense, the feel that it's becoming more urgent. That's narrative. And whether or not you know the big story of the game or not, what you know, what you experience is time is running out. And that is the narrative of that story. You need to act, you need to act ruthlessly, and you need to get out. What are some of the challenges uh, that you guys are facing as it relates to any of this? A lot of it has to do with <clears throat> applying the theme with the consequences that matter. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that can just be happening in the game. Yes. But you want, like you said, something to converge to some sort of endpoint that the players could understand which levers you need to pull to get to that endpoint. Yeah. So if you're telling a story, it's like a sandbox usually, right? And so they can go in any direction. And it's, uh, it's kind of like, how do you plot out a chart for the players to understand the consequences of each one of their actions? Uh, because like in Civilization, right, when you first discover fire or any kind of tool, do you know that it's going to lead to laser cannons or you know nuclear bombers or whatever? So yeah, it's, it's that kind of thing. Like, how do you present these levers to the players to understand the consequences of their actions? They feel like they are affecting the story in the long term. What I will say, well, and you want to answer that first? Go ahead. What I will say is narrative is not necessarily, and most often, especially in an open format like that, <coughs> about specific plot points. The narrative is an emotional journey. And so, those are things that you can actually deliver in lots of different guises. So it does, whether you've got lasers coming or whether the real idea is, you know, it's, it's domination overall, right? You know, how are you delivering the feeling that I am now achieving world domination? Like it's, 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 a, different, it's a different headset when you're creating a broader uh, narrative you know, story flow than specific plot lines. Uh, and I think it's much harder in any game to get plot lines delivered as opposed to the, the emotional narrative uh, because once you do the, the actual plot points, it becomes rote. When you play it a second, third time, you're like, yeah, I've been here, done that. Uh, but if, if you build in... Um, emotional triggers that help guide the way the game feels, that's, that's where uh, a lot of that can happen. Uh, so, interesting enough, uh, important consequences. Um, if you guys know me, I, you know, 14 years dedicated to backstabbery and nastiness. Because um, I just think it's funny. <laughs> um, one of the, you know, back in the 80s, a lot of take back games were really founded on player elimination. It was a mainstay of the genre. Whiz War, Lunch Money, you think about any of them. Um, but of course, that's fallen out of favor. How can you deliver the same joy of that emotional reward of totally nailed you, you are dead, ugh, with, but making it modern so that you get the, the same reward system, but you still 
have modernized so that you can make it uh, enjoyable for everyone and, and keep playing. I want to come back. Right. Well, <laughs> and that's right. So, um, so a lot of my games have started to replace player elimination with player transformation, um, where you change their game state. It becomes meaningful because their original mission and goals, what they're trying to achieve, have to whole scale change. Uh, either because they have a new way to win, or because there is a way for them to regain uh, their original state, but it's hard. It's meaningful because you may not get there, but the struggle to try and the possibility creates the tension that creates the story arc. So in Nevermore, Nevermore is a pretty abstract game, but there is actually a storytelling component in that where if, if you lose all your health, you become a raven, and your job changes now. You are now like Poe's raven, a human transformed into a raven, bringing doom to others while you struggle to regain your humanity. That's like, you know, the, it tries to presuppose how did Poe's raven even begin? Well, maybe this magical struggle is what created that bird to begin with. Um, but meaningful, meaningful impacts, um, and changing how you are rewarded, how you win, sometimes people will, will really like, you know what? I absolutely love being a raven. I hope someone takes me out because I think it's a lot more interesting and dramatic to do this and come back from that to win. It creates a lot of interesting dynamics. And a lot of that, again, it's, it's stuff you're building into the game that gives a story flow and an emotional impact. Uh, what, are, what other kind of things, um, are there designs that you're working on right now that would, that seem to be just, they play well mechanically, but they're, they're, they're missing that kind of a, a spark, which, which leads them from, hey, this is a great game, to, dude, when is this coming out? Right? Honestly, that's the difference. That, the, the difference many times is, did you create an experience at the table, or did you create a pastime? And that can not only be the difference in making your game from good to great, it also has huge impact on whether you should even print it at all. Because uh, that is my absolute barometer for any game, whether I'm gonna go to press. If someone at the end of, if, if the table at the end says, oh, this was really fun, warning. Do not proceed. Something is still in desperate need of attention in this game. If at least one or two people after every play session are like, oh yeah, no, seriously, uh, let me know when this is coming out. Here's my email or whatever, you know, that kind of reaction, that tells me the game is actually ready, whether it's to pitch to another company, whether it's to kickstart, whatever it is. It's not ready to sell until you have seen that desire to have in a way that they're, if you had it, they would, they would give you money right now. That's when you know your design is ready. And very often, those games have, whether they realize it or not, built in the narrative that delivers the emotional impact that makes the game successful. Yeah. I recently taught my roommates who aren't gamers to play Manhattan Project. Mm. And I don't know if you're familiar with it. I think it's a brilliant game. But it's Cold War. You're building bombs. That's your thing. But it does this. And, and you're trucking along really excited because you got 30 points and you need 60 to end the game. And then dude over here has one turn in it and it's like done. And the first time you play it, you're like, wait, what? And then you're like, but that's exactly it. You've really, really did a good job of uh, showing that escalation that happened during the Cold War all of a sudden everyone's doing this and the guy that gets the most first is, is the world dominator and in another game that mechanic would have been jarring and really a, it would have been a, a negative where in this case every single time you're like of course it went that way next time it's going to be me and like they keep wanting to come back and play but I'm, I'm positive 
that it was the fit of the right theme and the, and the way of telling that story with the right mechanic, that, that really sudden arc to the end wouldn't fit in many games. Yeah. But getting them together like that works brilliantly. And so I, I, I think if, whether you started with a theme or whether you started with the mechanics, You'll, you'll know, you like you said, it. when you, you find that, that spark of, of this is telling the right story the right way. Yeah. Um, Hidden Traitor is another great mechanic, um, which obviously it's all about the meta, like you were talking about before. Um, but uh, who's got a favorite Hidden Traitor game? No one, no one plays Hidden Traitor games? Come on! <laughs> all right. So... <laughs> Shadows over Camelot? Sure. Um, first of all, if you're not really familiar with, with that type of gameplay, go and play some. Um, it's another great mechanic to build uh, narrative into, into your game. Um, because when you build distrust in the group, um, you create a meta experience that is visceral. Oh yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so whether it is... Um, Secret Hitler, or um, I, I, my favorite experience is Battlestar Galactica. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah, that would—that's a game that got it right. Um, now, it's a long game; it's a big game, right? But because they had that hidden traitor mechanic, it was true to the story. They—they they lost the game I played the first time ever because they locked me in the break the whole game. Positive, I was a Cylon, and I could have saved them. And it worked so beautifully. You're like, you just recreated every episode ever of this TV show, and it was engaging and really fun. And I think that that ability to make people wonder. Yeah. And I have no poker face, and so I'm really bad at them, <laughs> but I enjoy them. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> but uh, bluffing, another great mechanic for building narrative. Um, I was I was playing a design today which I got a reaction I did not expect. Now this is a very simple, almost family game, uh, which is about fishing in a pond. And the rule is very simple. You're gonna draw a fish card and it has a number on it from one to say seven. Um, and let's say there's five players playing. Um, on your turn, you just simply have to say, um, oh, Oh, I caught a huge fish today. Rule is you must lie about the size, and it must be bigger than the card. So, everyone knows you're lying. The question is, who lied the most? Then you get to vote on who you think lied the most, but you only care about not how high they bid, but what the difference between their actual and what they said. And if you catch them, they get zero points. If not, um, then everyone gets the points that they, they, they lied about. I did not expect that it would lead to a very meta, very uh, story-driven situation because it's about lying about how big the fish are. So people were telling their own stories about, <laughs> you know, all right, you're not going to believe this one. Uh, you know, all they have to do is say seven, right? But the, <laughs> it's like, um, not only did I get a strike, but man, as I was pulling that fish out, another fish came up and swallowed him. This thing is like 15 inches. There's no reason why the game has to go that way, but people brought that to the experience because we set up, oh yeah, this is about lying about how big your fish are. So they're like, cool, that's fun for me. And they created their own narrative on, again, simple mechanics that gets you to bluff and lie and joke about like, you are so full of, yeah. So it's, it's, the mechanics led to the experience and I guarantee that that experience happens more than not as I continue to play this game. Thanks. Um, because the expectation, set an expectation, deliver on the expectation, fill in the, the reward system to make it satisfying. Or creatively pull the rug out. <laughs> or do that. Yeah. 
in your opinion, uh, how much research should we do into different gambling tactics to look at ways of really singing a hook into somebody? Because you've explicitly brought up seven or eight terms that are straight out of Vegas. Did I? <laughs> Either implicitly or stated out loud. Like Interesting. The amount of things here that are straight up gambling is amazing. Huh. Um, oh, so like bluffing and yeah. Um, and risk reward and everything else. Sure. If you think about what drives humans, what drives humans is, and, and why we play board games, it's the challenge, right? It's the excitement, it's the reward, and it's the risk. A lot of those things are why gambling is so addictive, right? You are tapping into the same uh, core of, of what drives humans overall. So, um, so I guess it's not surprising, um, but I, I think it's important to look at not just gambling games, but all the games that are actually out there and those that are doing their narratives well. And you'll know they're, they're really well constructed when you feel the game. And that's kind of what I, I want you guys to take away from this is Build, build the flow of the game to feel like an experience, and you get a better game. And that's, that's the simplest terms of what this is really all about. Do you have any final comments? No. Cool. Well, thank you very much for, uh, for coming. I hope it was valuable to you guys. Thank you. Thank and uh, see you out there. Um,